listening to Why Talk Climate, an expert podcast series on mobilizing youth for climate action, produced and directed by BCCIC Climate Change. Hello and welcome to season two of Why Talk Climate, BCCIC Climate Change's podcast. And we are so excited to kick off season two with our very first guest, Manvi Bala. Manvi is an intersectional community organizer, climate policy lead for the University of British Columbia's Climate Hub, and researcher who focuses on the interactions between climate change and health policy. She is also the co-founder of two nonprofits, not one, two, Shake Up the Establishment, which is dedicated to political advocacy for climate justice, and Misinformed, which provides health resources for women and gender diverse peoples. Welcome to the podcast, Manvi. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. We're so happy to have you. And I just recently learned that Manvi, like me, is a University of Waterloo alumnus. So <laughs> it's so great to reconnect after like all this time with other people who are in different programs. And uh, you were in the public health program. Is that correct? Yeah, I was in public health and health sciences. At, uh, I did my master's at University of Waterloo, yeah. And I actually defended this past August, which was one week before I started my PhD at UBC. So I, it was uh, it's like very recent that I uh, finished. It was literally last semester. So yeah, very connected still to the community there. And your research focuses are a bit different huh? from the master's to the PhD like my whole life is like nothing makes any sense <laughs> so <laughs> like stay tuned for the ride I have no idea you know I uh I have ADHD and I always uh since I found out I was like ah things make a lot more sense now that I understood that part of me but something that uh knowing this has only made me more and more confident that I just kind of pull the thread of interest in the direction that it leads so people always say like oh the, the last thing you did doesn't really make sense with the new thing and I'm like it makes sense to me though but yeah I think like on book like it's not the most linear path but I guess yeah that's just that's just a part and parcel with uh, me well, that's the beauty of the field of sustainability, right, is that it doesn't have to be a linear path. I feel like when you have a multidimensional, multidisciplinary background, it actually adds to the impact that you make. I can, I can relate. I mean, mine wasn't a linear path. I did business and then I did sustainability and international development. And now I work in communications. So <laughs> um, I really think it's all about um, how these experiences add up. And when they add up, we can really bring something very interesting to the world of, of impact and change. But you know what? This is a great way to lead into our first question, which is, what was your first experience taking part in climate action? And what made you passionate to pursue a career in this field? Yeah, I don't know that I'm, I don't know what career I'm pursuing, to be honest with you, <laughs> but I'm definitely passionate. I have had this question asked before, and I, it's hard for me to pinpoint it, and I'm sure it would be for most people, but something that um, I've been doing for a long time is community organizing, and I started when I was very young, and I used to do a lot more, like, global work, you know, um, with anti-poverty efforts and feminist work, and, like, 
throughout my middle school and my high school years um, did a lot of international like oriented relief aid and advocacy work and then coming into my undergrad it was still the focus and it was more intersectional feminism with anti-racism anti-poverty work but it was through that time in my life when I just got involved with this uh, organization called Oxfam um, it's like a feminist uh, anti-poverty organization and I was in charge of the Guelph chapter in my later years of my undergrad and we touched on so many different topics like from violence against women to getting out the vote to um, sustainable agriculture and it was just like seeing the intersection of so many issues and one thing that kind of made sense to me was all of these issues uh, locally and globally are very much exacerbated by the climate crisis so it just became like a natural thing that I you know bringing together all of my interests it was like oh climate justice it's like you can address all of these root causes and sort of like immediate issues but you can also work on the longer term issue that's like pretty much like this devastating thing that's happening and is going to only get worse in this very short time frame within my lifetime so it was like well kind of makes sense so I think when I was graduating it was just uh, something that was increasingly from second year undergrad onwards I was very much like a climate like advocate but before that I think I always cared about the issue I just didn't realize how interconnected everything was and it was through grassroots organizing that I came to make these connections because um, my undergrad is in biomedicine so it wasn't like I learned these things in school um, it really was like a you know learning within, learning by doing within the community organizing work that I did. So yeah, and then kind of to top it off, it was like when I graduated, I had so much energy and passion and I love organizing. And at that point I'd done it for almost like nine years. I think now I'm, it was like, I started when I was like 11 or 10 or 11. So looking back, like, yeah, really long trajectory. But then when I graduated undergrad, it was like, I had so much passion and a lot of motivation. I was going to start my master's at UW. And I just was like, wh what am I going to do now that Oxfam is done? And organizing in institutions is really what the biggest things that I've been involved in have been. And so suddenly I was out of school after four years of being in school and affiliated with all these variety of clubs and organizations. And then, so we started Shake Up the Establishment and that's when that began, um, April 2019, ahead of the federal election, because I had a lot of conversations with my peers about, you know, who are you voting for this election and how are they uh, supporting like our future? And that's how Suit was born. And yeah, yeah here we are. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. I love that um, your background and your experience in this field is so holistic, because sometimes when people go into climate change or climate action, it's purely environmental or they go into the social issues. And so to bring in both through climate justice and gender equality and realizing that there are so many different lenses to this global and local problem is really rich. So I really love that. And I love that this also drove you to um, start your own organization, start your own initiative, which leads me to my second question, which is, so first you co-founded Shake Up the Establishment, like you mentioned, and then Misinformed. They're two nonprofits that focus on providing resources and accurate information, which we really need at a time when misinformation travels so fast, so, so fast. So can you explain the primary goals between or behind these two initiatives and, and how they may bridge the gap between knowledge and action? Yeah, it's interesting. My theory of change is always evolving. So when we founded these when I when I co-founded these organizations, um, I think I definitely believed that if you have knowledge, you have the responsibility to act because that's the way that I've always operated. That's right. like been one of my ethoses. But like within the wider world and through my master's thesis, one of the kind of 
realizations that came about that really inspired the direction for my PhD interests um, and wider interests um, as these uh, organizations and other things that I'm involved in kind of grow as my theory of change grows and evolves is like it's not just knowledge that like enables change there's a lot to do with values and like motivation and your experiences in life and um, my master's research really pointed out to me um, the, the crux of the work really was like do public health Ontario uh, public health authorities in Ontario actually care about climate change um, and <laughs> doing the study uh, amidst like a global pandemic was really interesting because initially I was going to interview public health authorities um, and you know long story short the, the people that ended up participating in the study ended up being people that already cared about the issue so instead of answering this like broader question I was answering a more specific question of like what do people that actually care about the issue what does their mental model look like you know and, and what kind of what are the enablers that actually get them there because it was very hard to interview people that didn't care about climate change when the vaccine rollout is coming out and that's their primary job as well so it was a really a good unintentional lesson um, that even the people that you know might know about it the the difference between the people that actually act on it and this attitude action gap so much of it really comes from things outside of knowledge but knowledge is definitely an enabler and and when you know you almost like begin to know more and you want to know more so working within this like update like framework I think that both organizations work has evolved to be beyond just knowledge translation and knowledge sharing but that's still a fundamental part of everything that we do absolutely so important I think the motivation originally was this idea that like there is a lot of misinformation and it was very frustrating um you know coming from a perspective of I've been doing research and been involved in kind of and been passionate about science well science my whole life but research I started doing first year of my undergrad so I've been doing this for like really long time I used to work at sick kids doing wet lab research nanoparticles you know I've had a very interdisciplinary trajectory at one point I thought I didn't even know that I was going to go into like I'm doing social science work now comparatively and I was doing biomedical science working on how to save babies you know with oh, you know wow. nutrition and immunology so it's a very like different like path but through these experiences with science I feel like I've developed different schools of thought and at the end of the day what I really like appreciate are evidence-informed decisions you know decision making that does support the health and well-being of peoples but I think over time you know I even challenge the use of the word science now it's, it's language that we phase out in both organizations because science has such such an affiliation or kind of connotation associated with Western science and it's so limiting um, and now my PhD interests work in science for policy and knowledge and like who is seen as an expert and what is knowledge and very much down to the epistemologies and ontologies of like decision making you know and how to improve improve like epistemic diversity so diverse worldviews Bringing all of this together, it's hard for me to answer a question because I think where we began, when I began these organizations, the idea was a lot more simple. And then getting involved in this work and kind of discussing and, and kind of realizing what effective communication means and particularly to reach communities that are non-white, you know, like non-Anglo-centric, not Eurocentric. When you're doing risk communication work, um, you have to, you know, keep that as a forefront consideration. And so an example with Misinformed is we got $25,000 from the Public Health Agency of Canada to do uh, a vaccine confidence campaign and one of the groups you're we focusing on was um, you know racialized communities indigenous communities and other people that are structurally vulnerable or who have accessibility issues to the popular covid resources and stuff so we made a portal with 18 different languages but even then there's cultural considerations but there's also this idea of like you know like a mistrust of western science so how do you navigate like supporting vaccine confidence with that um, and a lot of my insights 
that came to advise the team was ah, it's not just sharing knowledge it's sharing it's relationship building you know it's like trust building these are also ways to enhance like vaccine confidence um, and a lot of those insights came from from research, you know, I was a lead research assistant of a national study for COVID-19 and racialized communities um, in Canada, still working on that. But um, the, that's what I mean, like so all these organizations, the origin point, I don't think is reflective of where they are now. They're always growing. And I think because we're young people, we're always learning more about the world and hopefully we just want our, our work to have an impact. So they started out being about knowledge translation and correcting misinformation and, and you know using scientific perspectives to improve decision making and advocacy but i think now what they really are is they do that but in part i think they also touch on the lived realities of people's like lives right now and they try to be more considerate of applicable you know knowledge sharing in a way that actually makes sense and is like uh, going to have a maximum impact for those that are the most going to going to be impacted, you know, by some of these crises or misinformation or, you know, who experience inequities in health more predominantly. So it's a complicated answer, but uh, this uh, work in progress with uh, how knowledge implicates action, I think. Absolutely. I, I want to ask a follow-up question because this is so interesting when you talk about information. Um, so I'm thinking as a communications professional, I'm thinking about target audiences and how to reach them. Does your initiative provide like anything to do with accessibility, like language interpretation or accessibility for this information? I'd be curious to know if that's the case or if there are plans for that in the future. Yeah, for misinformed, we definitely do. I mean, we translated all of our resources into, I think, 18 of the top languages. And we also went with languages most requested. Like we had like a formula to calculate like which like languages and like decide like which way that we wanted to not not so quantitative also it kind of sounds quantitative when I put it like that. But we did interviews with in Ontario, um, where majority of the work is focused, but it's a national organization, just kind of where we did kind of a case study of diversity because Ontario is very diverse. So it was a good good way to kind of get a cross section of languages. And we talked to people in every single community of Ontario, like the Ontario Health Leads, they're called. Um, and we actually did focus groups with them to try to figure out how to make these resources. Like we did audience segmentation, which is very common, I think, within targeted communication work. Um, my background is my uh, my master's. I did my uh, master's in climate change and, and public health, but I did an RA ship the whole time on risk communication work. So um, kind of both my interests tie really well with that. Um, honestly, the risk communication project is even bigger than my master's thesis. It feels like it feels like <laughs> never ending. So I've learned so much adjacent to to my actual my master's project because like this this work is like five papers worth of like research that never ends but is so meaningful. Um, so through that, the, the 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 skills learned and kind of the knowledge learned about how to do targeted communications language is definitely it. But also like where are you? you know, where are you, what is your medium? You know, what is, who's your messenger? Um, there's a lot more to communication than just language. So we definitely consider translation like as important, but I think it's like really thinking about the audience, talking talking to people, stakeholders, and meaningfully involving their, their inputs and in designing like the dissemination strategy is also like very important for communication. But I love communication. I could talk about it all day. It's, it's pretty much... <laughs> The most important thing, I think, because it ties to relationship building, it ties to knowledge sharing, it ties to decision making. Like for me, I think a lot of uh, the work that we do in, in all spheres and the work that I do within my academic life, um, I see communication as pretty much like the groundwork for anything. So, 
Absolutely, absolutely. Every day there's communications, and we can have a whole podcast on communication, but we just touched on a couple of very important things, where the source of information comes from, who's involved, um, the accuracy, right, the dissemination. I think we spoke about a lot of very, very interesting things. Um, so thank you for that. Um, our next question is uh, what you're currently doing. And so you're now the climate policy lead at UBC's Climate Hub. What work with the with the Climate Hub are you most excited about? Yeah, that's a great question. I love the Climate Hub. Um, so far, my time there has been like so wonderful. It's a team that's taught me a lot. And the model that the Climate Hub operates under is actually I did a research project last semester in uh, one of my courses um, and I got to partner with the Climate Hub even though I am a part of Climate Hub this was like wearing my student researcher hat for a minute and I actually did a study on um, how um, how to support student organizers for climate justice in institutional settings and I really focus in on UBC you know and one thing that I want to say is that this uh, this study really was a love letter to student organizers. And so it, not in any sort of intentional way, but just the way that the findings worked out was that there's such positive things to say about organizations and groups that come together that, that do center like student safety, student like well-being and student success, but and not just like deliverables or like productivity. Like right. one of the best things about Climate Hub is I think we clock like an hour or something like that for paid rest, which is just such a cool concept that I'm gonna oh, wow. translate to other, to other parts of my life. Um, but yeah, to actually answer your question outside of how much I'm excited about the Climate Hub is um, one of the one of the cool projects. And there's a number of cool projects that I've had the opportunity to pretty much self-design and work on, which is, again, so cool that they enable that, um, is, uh, well, there's two that I maybe I'll highlight very briefly. One is this um, Climate Justice Concepts and Context Guide. It's just this idea of, like, let's get on the same page about climate justice. And we have a lot of different departments at UBC. I know we have a new Center for Climate justice um, we have yet to touch base with them on this and we are going to by like a diff number of different departments like the climate emergency declaration group and well-being and, and etc they're hopefully going to be working with us to try to find like a common definition but not that not that that's the only definition but just like a starting point because climate justice is such a con uh such a almost like a complicated interdisciplinary like very like almost transdisciplinary like concept that is very hard to almost capture so that's something that we're working on and it sounds kind of vague but it feels like it has a lot of purpose because people do use that word a lot and don't know what the right way to use it is and kind of the way that grassroots organizing intends for that to be operationalized as and so we don't want institutional use of the word to almost dilute the the genuine impact that that concept and the framework of climate justice can have. And the second project that I'll touch on super quickly, a number of projects that are so cool, is this idea of this governance document. Um, myself and the climate policy aide working with me this semester, Lauren, are working on uh, trying to figure out how we got here and where we're going next, uh, not just strategic planning, but also trying to summarize like our governance style and like lessons learned. And this document is a work in progress, but basically we've been approached by so many student groups and so many universities to try to find out how they can set up a climate hub at their university. That's amazing. So yeah, I mean, I think it's really meaningful to invest 
in capacity building for the movement, you know, so people that do have the skills and experience to have established things like the Climate Hub or, you know, other things like making a nonprofit or whatever, like it's really important for us as we get older, <laughs> sounds weird, but to write some of this stuff down so it's easy for other people to kind of um, not spend so much time like we did, like trying to figure this all out, like just make it easier and, and build that capacity within the movement um, to do this kind of work and, and have that impact. So those are some exciting things um, that I'm working on. I 100% agree. And, and, you know, I'm so curious, are there barriers currently preventing more youth from becoming involved in climate action? Uh, like in an institutional setting or more like broadly in the community? Broadly, I would say both. Can you speak to both? Yeah, I think um, institutionally, the report will be published as soon as I finish the, the revisions. Yeah, <laughs> they take so long, huh? <laughs> Yeah, honestly, procrastination. Yeah, but, um, but yes, uh, so people can read the full seeds report on UBC's website somewhere in the world. But um, uh, yes, yeah, so it's it's lengthy. But um, there's a number of things in that report that were recommendations that came out or things that were identified as being kind of limiting factors. I think one that seems counter counterintuitive for people that maybe aren't used to grassroots organizing and kind of are only organizing in these institutional settings uh, it's like twofold. One is that um, organizing institutional settings is very different than organizing in grassroots settings. And this is something that like I have had firsthand experience with for like my whole like organizing like life, 11 to 12 years that I've done it now or however long, like it's very different. You almost like code switch the way that you talk, the asks, the approaches, the angles, the, the leverage points, they're all different. The funding conflicts, you know, the precarity being a student working in a setting where there's people that are have a lot of power over your professional and academic careers. It's definitely a different kind of organizing and the report does a really good job and the research um, if I say so myself, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just trying to, you know, capture that uh, lesson for other people, for the institution to kind of recognize, but also for people who are trying to alleviate some of these barriers to just be aware that the fact that, you know, we won't see the same level of progressive action in institutional settings almost ever by nature of the way that these institutions are set up, by nature of the way of their funding sources, even divestment, we've divested, but where are we reinvesting? And then, you know, I'm working right now, I'm also, um, the graduate academic assistant of the climate justice research in the climate justice research collaborative i'm supervising five really smart intellectual <laughs> undergraduate students um and they're doing a study right now on um you know ubc for example and uh how ubc um what are the existing affiliations with fossil fuels even though we've divested you know researchers are being funded by fossil fuel companies and certain grants are coming through that have um partnership with fossil fuel companies so like they're trying to map these corporate mapping, you know, trying to figure out where are the links that even if we've divested, but you know, you see through that even you see that um, knowing that the power structures of these companies are so intrinsically tied to knowledge structures that then inform policy, because the knowledge we're generating at our institution is so amazing, right? But like, it's also, you know, like it has credibility. So if somebody affiliated with the university is kind of backing a certain stance, it goes into forming policy. So being a student organizer, if you want to advocate against that, it is very precarious. You know, you're going up against a lot of power structures. And so unless you're a tenured professor who's coming out and, you know, making waves, it's very difficult to make that change in institutional settings. So the best things that institutional settings can do is be aware of that and make be, be like 
logistic with your asks and, and realize that we'll always need grassroots organizing. So make it easier for students to have community partners and get involved outside in the broader community as well. But then in the broader community, and, and this applies to institutional settings a lot too, obviously, like, but I think in the broader community, one of the biggest challenges is particularly for women and like gender diverse peoples and maybe like, you know, people, neurodiverse people like me or, you know, racialized people, indigenous people, people that are often made to be marginalized or who have been historically and presently underrepresented or excluded from like, you know, having larger platforms and having the, the privileges of being able to be the focus. I find that spaces are not very safe. And I think the, the safe, safe spaces gets made fun of a lot, like the word, like, but it's true. Like, I can't think of a better word right now. It, it's just this idea of like, you don't have accountability policies. You don't have anti-oppression policies. You shouldn't be making organizing spaces if you don't think of these things first and then and then operate under an accountability framework that is always open to feedback to keep getting better. But you need something there first and first, first and foremost, right? So I think organizing is not as safe as it could be in all settings. And I mean, I've had many sad experiences, <laughs> but um, I, I think that was definitely a motivator for even founding my own organization. But yet even within my own organization, there have been instances, you know, because, you know, when you bring people into the team, you, you do so with the best of intentions and then you don't know how that's gonna transpire. And lucky for us, we do have these accountability policies and we do have anti-oppression and, you know, um, the safety of people above productivity is like a critical function of our work yeah but it's 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 counterproductive for organizing spaces to, to not do that universally and I find that that's definitely the case in many different environments so that's I think those are some barriers or kind of things to definitely we need to work on in, in these different spaces for sure and unfortunately the barriers you did mention uh, sometimes they can make getting involved discouraging so I would ask, how do you find joy and support your well-being amidst a movement that can be discouraging sometimes? Yeah, it's definitely like not the happiest <laughs> like time. I mean, I, I've been asked this question so much this past year, I think especially. I have no, like, I think I change my answer every time I'm asked because I'm trying to find like all the different things that I do because there's not just one thing, I think. It's definitely like a toolkit. Um, some things work for a while and then suddenly they just don't work anymore and then you have to find a new thing to help you, you know? But the biggest thing, and this is something that I have a hard time with, like I'm somebody who struggles with clinical anxiety, clinical depression. I mean, it comes in part and parcel with, you know, a lot of ableist structures that I work in with being super neurodiverse and not having the ability to always, um, accommodate that within all these different neurotypical environments and sort of things of that sort. But what I find is that a lot of the time organizing is very reactive and it's something that we're trying to move away from at Shake Up the Establishment especially is is just that. So one thing that I'll say is we just got funding. We got $15,000 from Patagonia, which is really cool to do this program this year called Rest, resiliency, resistance. I always mix up the order. I hope I got that right of the three R's, but it's in, we're, we're doing kind of a pilot of it. And if it's good, we'll hopefully keep doing it. But it's a summer program where we're inviting climate organizers. It's like a fellowship. And for four months, they just like hang out and we give them food. We organize hikes and this is their form of climate organizing. And we're trying to get people to like relax because a lot of the time, you know, like the work will keep going. You know, if you, if you take a break, it doesn't mean that everyone's taking a break. So this idea of pass the baton and in making a sustainable movement is really important to put in practice 
But also, I mean, something that I'm, and I've said this in a number of different places, so I feel like this is going to come back to bite me because I've been throwing this around and I think in a year I'm going to be like, what were you saying on all these podcasts? But I've been throwing around this idea just within my team at Suit and I've been saying like, guys, I think I want like us to do imaginative policy making and everyone at Suit's always game for my wacky ideas, but it's this idea and I think it's not not completely original like I don't know where kind of it came from I'm sure I read a couple things and my mind kind of put them together but I'm sure somebody's thought of this but it's this idea of like you know utopian thinking got me thinking about how like we should really be dreaming of like worlds we want and how do we get there and we can definitely work backwards from there as a different way of just kind of thinking in the box all the time of reacting to the government's like yes we will conserve 30% of this land okay great do we like that or not and that's kind of the way that we operate in organizing it's very reactive so and sometimes I think we need to take a pause and think of like what we actually want and and how do we get there instead of just being like how do we work within the existing structures to get there and you need both you know I think so the rest resiliency resistance I think I flipped the order again I don't know we'll, we'll listen back but um, that program the only deliverable of it is at the end it's like it's a lot about climate dreaming and so we're trying to figure out by the end of it what do these people who are so engaged like what kind of world they want and by reconnecting with you know nature and just having opportunities to rest and like be nourished like what world do they see is like very much possible and what solutions do they see is like necessary to get there so we're trying to see if this new approach to organizing works and I think that gives me hope so my long, long story, short answer is, yeah, like, don't lose hope. And every time I start losing hope, I, like, Google stuff. Like, how do I, like, get hope again? And like, I'll look up random articles that make me feel like, yes, it's important to, like, not lose hope because with depression, anxiety, with, with other mental health, you know, issues or challenges, with eco-anxiety, eco-grief, with just, like, a crappy time in life or anything that's happening to you, I think hope is definitely something that gets us through. Uh, it gives you pause to think about stuff, and I think that's really important. So, yeah, I think just try and find uh, communities and people and activities that reinforce that sense of hope is really important. That was so inspiring. Can I ask you to repeat those three R's? Rest? And there was two others. I think the program is called Rest Resiliency Resistance. And it's this idea of like one like leading to the other, but they all feed into each other. And um, this is an idea that like was inspired for me by Indigenous Climate Action. They, they use the Healing Justice Framework. And the Healing Justice Framework is its own like framework independent of them, but I saw them use it and I've been familiar with it from prior organizing work. And so just, I've been, use, I've been used to that framework in other contexts, not climate related. And so when I saw it in a climate context, I was like, oh my God, this is a great idea. Like, I don't know why it's been years since I heard this and I didn't realize that, you know, teachings from other places could have uh, impact within climate organizing, especially. So there's a number of studies that have been done over the years about how the healing justice framework is a great approach for engaging youth organizing and it synergizes with some of the findings I had last semester with the study that I did on student organizers for climate justice and how to make them how to support th their work better one of the things was definitely this idea of potentially trying to operationalize this healing justice framework and so that's what the rest resiliency resistance project is also touching upon but from a more grassroots perspective with shake up the establishment I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. I've never heard of that framework before, so I think I'm going to look into it more. And I encourage everybody listening to look into it, too. Um, okay, well, I guess we kind of touched on um, action and something that people can already take action on for climate justice and climate change. So my final question to wrap up this incredible conversation is what's one action 
that each of our listeners could take this month to support climate justice and help in the fight against climate change? One that comes to mind for me is um, in the United States, they have the Green New Deal. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an icon, um, champions this, uh, you know, piece of legislature. And then so in Canada, we have this same Green New Deal uh, legislature that requires MPs support to kind of be tabled. Um, And so I believe Peter Julian, um, who is an MP, and uh, they have a website. They're the MP that sponsored the bill. Um, It's a nonpartisan bill. I believe it has four out of five parties vocally supporting it at this time. And of course, as the campaigns and as as people reach out to their MPs to tell their MPs to support it, I'm sure, you know, it's one of those things where, of course, the climate crisis is not a partisan issue. Uh, Neither is environmental or biodiversity crises. So um, I think that with this Green New Deal, um, you know, this bill that has great potential to have change in Canada, that is definitely one thing that they can do. And I believe Peter Julian's website has an automatic thing where you can look up your MP and email them directly to try to get their support for this bill. Um, but something that me and Peter talked about, because I had the opportunity to touch him, talk to him about this bill and talk about like what are the actual ways we can get actual MPs to support it and not just the email campaign is effective, but you know, I was asking him what is the most effective way. And one of the things that he had said to me as a piece of advice was, actually going to see your MP is very important. And that is definitely challenging during this time with COVID, but he gave me an anecdotal example It took five meetings with this MP for these constituents to get their MP to endorse the bill. And it just kind of shows that you do have to work on, um, you know, like no matter the party affiliation, um, an MP is an individual with an individual set of values and priorities. And so um, having those conversations and making your case and really like continuing to do so until they listen to you because they are working for you. Um, I think that that's really important. So when it's safe to do so, trying to find ways to engage with your MP, um, you know, whether it be, I don't know if you can do outdoor, I don't know what the safest situation is. But in the meantime, I definitely encourage uh, emailing your MP and getting familiar with um, this bill um, as it probably will have a one year timeline is what Peter told me, like there's still time. uh, But we if we want to speed in that timeline up, we, we need people to get their MPs to vocally support this bill. I think it needs like 100 MPs to move uh, a little bit quicker. And so that's definitely one piece of action uh, that can be taken is supporting this bill for a Green New Deal in a Canadian context. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. I think that's a lot of people are going to walk away with that and really, really find it useful, I think. So thank you so, so much. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we've reached the end of our questions because I've enjoyed this conversation so much and I feel like I have so many more questions. But let's stop there because we don't want to go on and on and on. Thank you so much, Manvi, for joining us and thank you for this wonderful conversation. Do you have any last words or anything that maybe we didn't ask that you wanted to share with the audience? No, I think this was great. Thank you so much for inviting me. And um, yeah, I'll just say to whoever's listening, I really hope that you continue to stay engaged. Uh, it's definitely not a lost cause. Sometimes I have moments where I'm like, Ugh. like almost every day I'll have this thought pass through my head, you know, but still I, you know, conti- we continue to work on this issue and I have hope for our future. So I really hope everyone continues to stay motivated and finds ways to stay engaged in a way that, you know, works for them and works for their mental health as well. But, you know, just don't disengage completely. Always just stay connected and uh, we'll work on this issue together. So, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. We definitely are going, we're going to work on this together and we're in this together. So thank you for those incredibly inspiring words. Um, 
always come back here to this episode if you're looking for inspiration because I personally will. I'll listen to this again when I'm looking for inspiration. And um, I just loved our conversation. So thanks again, Mamvi, so much. Thank you everyone for listening. There are going to be multiple episodes in the coming season. So please stay tuned for those. And also, Mamvi, I wanted to direct people to your podcast. You have a podcast as well, right? Yeah, Shake Up the Establishment has a podcast. It's very casual. It's called Establish. You can find it on, I think, everything. Uh, so anywhere you listen to podcasts. I feel like I sounded like a real podcaster <laughs> there. You can find it on any platform. But also if you want it, if you want the transcript or any kind of other additional kind of details or you just want to go, find it really easily, you can just go to shakeuptheestab.org slash podcast or click the little establish like E on our website and it'll take you to our podcast page. It has all the episodes, the transcript and like, you know, other details yeah i have it in front of me i'm looking at the topics connections with nature green jobs for youth taking the scaries out of politics i love that title by the way but these are really really interesting topics so i encourage you guys to go take a look there um and follow manvi's work she's incredible and thank you manvi again um i think you're going to be doing incredible things and you've inspired a lot of people to do incredible things as well so thanks so much have a wonderful day and see you all soon